Well, good morning. Again, welcome, especially if you are visiting us. We're happy to have you with us uh, coming together to uh, worship God, pray to Him, uh, sing to Him, and to hear from His Word. Uh, I sent off my wife with a van full of high school students to head up to Silver Birch Ranch for camp this week, uh, yesterday morning, so that was exciting to send a group of kids up there. In preparation, I changed the oil in our van. Uh, Jared, you'll be happy to know I made sure the drain plug was in, then put in the oil. Uh, but I did put in too much oil, so then I had to take the drain plug out and try to let only a little bit come out. But the oil in the van was changed. They made it up there safely. And uh, along with prayer for our search committee, I would also ask you to pray for uh, our kids who are up there at camp this week, the high school-aged kids. And then there will be a group of middle school-aged kids who are going to go up for a week of camp later on in the summer. So I appreciate your prayers for them. And if I didn't say, my name is Jeremy Lundgren, one of the elders here at Hope Fellowship, uh, I want to pray for our time in God's Word now uh, and for those students up at camp. Lord God, I uh, think of each of the students at camp this week and uh, grateful for who they are, grateful uh, that they are a part of our youth group and the, the many ways that you are working in their lives. I pray that they would have fun uh, as they're away from their normal routine, away from their families, uh, meeting uh, other kids, other campers, and uh, just running around in the woods a lot. Uh, Lord, would you be using that time uh, to speak to them, if there are any that don't know you, uh, God, that you would make the gospel clear to them. Uh, Lord, just that they, they would have joy, that they would have hope in you. Uh, keep them safe and uh, watch over them. Pray in your name, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for our time in your word as we look at an, another passage in First Peter that encourages us as Christians in the face of suffering, uh, that that would help uh, not just on the level of just kind of practical advice about suffering, though that's there, uh, but in my prayer is that it would help uh, shape our understanding of what it even means to be a Christian in this world, uh, that we are those who are strangers and aliens, uh, that we are called out by you, Christ, out of this world, uh, and that there is resistance to you, Christ, and therefore resistance to us. Uh, that part of the life you've called us to is a life of suffering. Uh, help us to see that rightly. Help us to have hope in you. Uh, so, Lord, would you make your word clear to us this morning? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, let me read our passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator, while doing good. 
A friend of mine recently uh, sent me a picture of the San Francisco peaks. Uh, those are the mountains in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, where Casey and I used to live. And uh, my friend sent me the picture uh, because you can see just a huge plume of smoke coming up from the peaks because the trees, the forest is on fire. Unfortunately, again, there have been a number of uh, pretty bad forest fires in that area in recent years. And the fires are bad enough, but then... Uh, the rains come and because there's no plants to absorb it, there's a lot of flooding in certain neighborhoods in certain areas of town and then all the erosion uh, that goes with that. About 45 years ago, there was an infamous fire called the Mount Eldon uh, Radio Fire because it started near some radio towers up on this peak. And uh, that fire is so well known uh, because the scars that it left on the front face of the mountain are just so stark and visible. Uh, the fire burned through these trees on the steep, rocky side of a mountain. And then shortly afterwards, heavy rains came and washed away all the soil uh, so that no trees could grow back. And I mean, this is Arizona, right? So there's not much soil to begin with. Uh, but the soil that was there got washed away. And so uh, to this day, uh, you can go up on that mountain, and uh, it's, it's kind of strange. There's grass and small things growing, but there's no big trees, uh, though there are just kind of the, the remains of those trees, those ponderosa pines that burned 45 years ago. A lot of them have fallen over, but there's a lot of them that are still, still kind of standing like tombstones or skeletons, something along those lines. It's interesting, throughout the years, whenever I hear about or see the destruction that those fires cause, I'm regularly reminded of uh, something that I learned actually in one of my classes uh, in college there in Flagstaff a long time ago uh, about the benefits that fire has for forests. I remember learning in a class about how fires uh, can strengthen the big old trees, how fires nourish the soil, help new plants grow, and then clear out all the old debris that's there. Uh, but those benefits come when the fires remain within certain limits, right? Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of those recent fires are so big and so hot that the damage they do is just devastating. The damage far outweighs the benefits that fire would normally have. Uh, for you and I, we know that fire is powerful. Uh, we know that it has both, both benefits when it's used properly and then dangers. And, and so fire, specifically purifying fire, fire that is meant to test and to refine, that kind of fire, a fiery trial, is the image that Peter uses in our passage this morning to, to describe the suffering of God's people. He speaks of a fiery trial, and then he instructs us on what to do and what not to do when that fiery trial comes upon us. So this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to be talking about the do's and don'ts of suffering. Uh, so here's my main point. Since those who share Christ's sufferings also share his glory, Christians should not face trials as if they will fail, but as if they will ultimately prevail. So in setting out to consider what we shouldn't do and what we should do in the face of suffering, in the face of a fiery ordeal, uh, perhaps another alternative has entered into your mind, right? Well, there's what to do, and there's what, what not to do when you face suffering. Uh, but what about the option of just not facing the suffering in the first place? Perhaps you would uh, like to explore that option. Um, 
Well, unfortunately, Peter doesn't give us that option uh, in our text. Uh, right? We would rather perhaps avoid the fire in the first place, um, but life, as you hopefully know, doesn't give us that option. God doesn't give us that option. Uh, so think about the suffering in your life, uh, whether it has passed or you are in the middle of it or it's coming on the horizon. Think about situations where there's a painful discrepancy between how you want things to be and how they actually are. Do you have hope in those situations? Not just hope that the troubles will go away and leave you alone, but hope that those trials themselves will be beneficial to you, that they will strengthen you and refine you. Or uh, do the trials in your life seem more like that fire that destroys everything in its path, leaving you hopeless? God warns us in this passage of that possibility uh, of of not being saved uh, through the trials of God's judgment. He he does give us a warning in that passage. Uh, But that's in contrast to the joy and hope that Christ gives in suffering uh, to those who are his. So avoiding suffering isn't an option. Uh, Suffering, uh, as we look at Christ, it's the means by which he lived a life pleasing to God. Uh, Suffering is the means by which he accomplished his mission to seek and save the lost. And he calls us to share in his suffering. It's not that our suffering redeems us. Uh, Christ's suffering on the cross brings redemption. But when Christ calls us to share in his suffering, he's calling us to imitate him. Uh, So God calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ. He calls us to take up our crosses and follow him because if we share in Christ's suffering, uh, we also share in his glory. If we participate in his death, we also participate in his resurrection. And so that's our first point, point number one. Those who share in Christ's sufferings also share his glory. Uh, So in verse 13, when Peter tells us to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, he's not telling us to rejoice because suffering itself is good, right? He's not telling you to somehow convince yourself that things that are painful are actually pleasurable or anything like that. But he's telling us to rejoice because of the good things that come through the suffering, He's telling us to rejoice because we get to share in everything that is Christ's. Christ has given his whole self to us. And you know the pattern of Christ's life. Uh, You know the pattern of the cross before the empty tomb, of defeat before victory, death before life, shame before glory. And so the logic of Paul's argument, or of Peter's argument here, Uh, It's not hard to follow. The logic of his argument is is pretty clear. If God has given you a share of Christ's suffering and shame, he's also given you a share of Christ's victory and glory, and that uh, should cause us to rejoice. So according to verse 13, it's interesting as we think about uh, sharing in Christ's glory, certainly there's a future sense to that share of Christ's glory. Uh, So again, in verse 13, uh, it, it talks about that. It says that we will rejoice and be glad when Christ's glory is revealed. Uh, when Christ returns, when he is triumphant, when he uh, brings about the resurrection of the dead and invites us into his eternal kingdom, uh, we will rejoice, right? There will be happiness and gladness when his glory is revealed. And so we have that uh, hope of future glory 
with Christ when, when he returns. But then if you look in verse 14, there's also the hope that we can share in Christ's glory today uh, through the Holy Spirit. So verse 14 again, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, verse 14 should remind us of the words of Jesus from Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil, evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, being insulted or reviled or lied about are not themselves blessings, but we are blessed first because we have a reward waiting for us in heaven, as Jesus says, and then second, because of the spirit of glory who presently rests upon us, as Peter says. Uh, so the Holy Spirit gives us a foretaste of that coming kingdom. The, the Holy Spirit gives us a foretaste of that coming glory today. Uh, he strengthens us and comforts us in the midst of trials. He gives us certainty when doubts rise up in our hearts. He's the seal of our inheritance in heaven. In Acts chapter 7, uh, right before Stephen, the first martyr, is about to be stoned to death, uh, we see uh, that present share that we have in the glory of Christ through the Holy Spirit and that future share we have in the glory of Christ come together uh, in a spectacular way uh, in, in Stephen's last moments of life. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 56. Now when they, the crowd, heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, I gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, what's so clear and, and powerful there in that moment of Stephen's life, uh, we can see uh, in similar ways, we can see a similar pattern uh, in the Bible and in our own lives as well. When suffering intensifies, the presence and the power and the glory of the Spirit of God uh, among us and in us, his work also intensifies to meet that suffering. So those who share in Christ's sufferings also share in his glory. Uh, that's my first point, and it's important. Uh, I want to spend some time on that because it provides the foundation for the instruction that Peter gives us in this passage. Uh, as we will see the instruction that uh, God gives us through his word, it goes against our natural inclinations. It goes against the impulses that we usually have when difficulties overwhelm us. Uh, so we need to remember as we are in the midst of those difficulties or as they're coming on the horizon uh, that we share in Christ's glory. Uh, he has given us his Holy Spirit to be with us always. Uh, all right, so let's look now at the, the do's and don'ts of suffering and we'll start with the don'ts. Uh, so point number two, don't face trials as if you will fail. And then I'll have three don'ts under that, under that heading. Uh, the first, uh, point A, don't be surprised. Verse 12 again, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's an interesting 
command we're given. And it's interesting in this sense, I think about how much suffering there is in this world. I think of all the difficulties and trials that people go through. I just, just think of how suffering is pretty much everywhere, right? It's not the only thing that we see in this world. There are good things and pleasant things as well, but certainly uh, suffering is a regular part of this world. Uh, so think about the steady stream of sicknesses and sorrows that people face. Isn't it interesting though, that no matter how normal, quote unquote, normal suffering is, and no matter how regularly or predictably it happens, we are continually and constantly surprised and shocked when it actually does happen, uh, whether to us or to people close to us. Suffering does seem strange. It seems uh, out of place. It seems like something foreign and unwelcome that's kind of pushed its way uninvited into our lives. And so, and so Peter's helping us deal with that tension where there's a longing to not have suffering, uh, but suffering is a normal part of life in this world, and it's a normal part of life as a Christian. So we shouldn't be surprised, and there are a lot of reasons we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So there's comfort there, there's hope there that Jesus has overcome the world, but he says pretty clearly there, in this world you will have trouble. So don't be surprised when the trouble comes. According to my old pastor, actually in Arizona, we're often surprised when trials come. We're surprised by the intensity of the trial. We're surprised by the purpose of the trials. And we're surprised by the source of the trials. Uh, right? We're surprised by how bad things can get. Uh, the heat gets turned up, and then it gets turned up even more. Uh, difficulties that we hoped would come to a resolution quickly drag on and on and on with no relief in sight. And then we're surprised by the purpose of trials. We're surprised that God would bring them about to help us grow, uh, to test us, uh, that he would use them to reveal the impurities of our hearts and refine us. Uh, when we think about the desire we have to grow um, in our relationship with God, uh, oftentimes we want that growth to happen through times of favor and rest, uh, but often he brings that growth uh, through times of hardship and turmoil. Uh, let me read a few lines from an old hymn by John Newton. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. The hymn goes on and there's, it's more hopeful than that. It doesn't just end with hell assaulting uh, uh, every part of our soul, but that's part of the hymn uh, and that's part of the process. When we ask God for growth, we want him to do it uh, in some favored hour, uh, but instead of that, uh, he allows these angry powers of hell to assault our soul in every part. And then we're surprised by the source of trials. Sometimes trials come uh, through something that's seemingly small and trivial. Uh, trials may come from, from close friends or family members. Certainly uh, the, the Christians uh, that are the audience of First Peter are facing that where there are others around them uh, 
Chapter 4, verse 4, talks about those who are surprised that we as Christians wouldn't join in them uh, in their evil doing, in their sinful practices. Uh, Sometimes trials come, yeah, just from unexpected places, from unexpected people, and at unexpected times. Uh, But this passage gives us two reasons not to be surprised by suffering. Uh, We've already looked at the first reason based on verse 13. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering because Jesus suffered and he told us to expect the same thing. Uh, As we follow him, we should expect our lives to follow that same pattern. Uh, So Jesus again in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then the second reason in this passage that we should expect suffering, uh, we can see in verse 17. Uh, So according to verse 17, Christians should not be surprised by suffering because God's judgment begins in his own household. That's interesting. Um, But if you look in the Old Testament, this is a a well-established pattern. Uh, The God of Israel, we're told, is the the judge of the whole earth. Everyone is accountable to him. And that gave Israel great comfort. It gave them comfort to know that God would judge the nations. And certainly God will judge the nations, but he always made sure that Israel knew that they weren't exempt. So there are a number of places in the Old Testament where God's judgment is described, and it's described as starting in Jerusalem and then moving out from there to the other nations. Uh, In Ezekiel 9, it starts in the temple with the priests and the Levites and moves out from there. Similarly, in Malachi chapter 3, it talks about the Lord coming into his temple, and then after the Lord shows up in his temple, Malachi in chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, asks this, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." So Peter takes that Old Testament pattern of God's judgment starting with his own house and he he applies it to the church. Uh, If we expect God to rid this world of evil, we should expect him to begin with us as his children. That's why Peter says it's time for judgment to begin now, today, in this time, uh, in, in life as we're currently living it. Uh, God's judgment is going to come to an end when Christ returns, but he's already begun that work of judgment today. Uh, He's already begun that work of judgment in his church, uh, refining it with fire, cleansing it with soap, Uh, and then God beginning that judgment today with his own people should serve as a witness, it should serve as a testimony and a warning to the world that looks on, that uh, that there's, there's more to come. So don't be surprised when suffering comes. Next, don't be ashamed. Uh, You know, along with a couple places in the book of Acts, 1 Peter 4.16 is the only other place in the whole Bible where the word Christian is used. Uh, Peter says we should not be ashamed if we suffer as Christians. And the use of that word uh, here is particularly powerful uh, because, because the word Christian was originally coined 
uh, as a term of contempt, as an insult. Uh, So as the church spread, the wider culture heard about this man named Christ and, you know, all his little followers who wanted to be just like him. And so they started calling these followers of Christ little Christs, Christians, to mock them. And that's the sort of mockery that Peter's addressing here. Sorry, as an aside, uh, Christians were called Christians as a term of mockery. And then in Greek, right, the word for Christ is Christus. And then there's a word crestus, which has to do with being good. It's, it almost means like being a goody two-shoes, that kind of like, it's like a derogatory term as well. And so uh, that was another term of, term of derision that uh, pagans would use about Christ and about the early Christians that Christus was a Christus, right? He, like his followers, they, won't, they were these little uh, goody two-shoes. Anyways, that's uh, no extra charge for that comment. Um, where was I? Yeah, when, when Peter says to these Christians, don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian, uh, it was probably with some level of awareness of the, the insult, the weight that that term carried for them. and how hard it can be to endure uh, difficulties and trials when there's mockery involved, Uh, right? Think of how much hardship you can endure. Think of how long you can keep going when everyone around you uh, thinks that you are brave and strong and noble, right? How encouraging that can be. But then think of how quickly you crumble on on the inside when the people around you think you're an idiot for what you're enduring, for what you're suffering. When the people around you make you feel about an inch tall, as if being a Christian and living like one is the most ridiculous thing you could be doing right now, especially when it's causing this, what the world would say, unnecessary trouble, unnecessary hardship for you. But when we suffer that way, when we suffer as Christians, we're exhorted not to be ashamed. Don't be ashamed, don't lose heart. Jesus says that wisdom is justified by her her children and the wisdom of following Christ, even if it looks foolish today, is eventually gonna be made plain to all. So don't be ashamed. Next, don't suffer as an evildoer. In verse verse 15, it says, uh, by contrast to suffering as a Christian, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Uh, There's more than one reason why you might be facing suffering in this world, Uh, but this is actually the third time in the letter of 1 Peter uh, that we're told to avoid suffering specifically because of sin. Uh, Peter mentions it in chapter 2, verse 20, and in chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, So, uh, right, lots of reasons you might be suffering. We want to suffer as Christians. Uh, We don't want to suffer as an evildoer. We don't want to suffer as, you know, a murderer, a thief, something like that. As you think about the suffering that often accompanies those who do evil, sometimes people suffer as evildoers uh, just when the evil that they do kind of produces its natural consequences in their lives. So if you like to meddle with other people's lives, get into their business, right, it just seems to naturally have a way of causing a mess 
It has a way of causing people to distance themselves from you. Uh, it causes people not to trust you, right? It, it breaks relationships. It breaks trust. You don't even have to try to make meddling do that. It just does it. You meddle and it gives you that fruit as a result. But then there are other times kind of in this world, um, I'm thinking here with the examples of murder and theft, where suffering comes to evildoers kind of through the actions of others, uh, specifically government and civil authorities. Uh, so, right, if you engage in criminal behavior, uh, then you can expect, you know, in one way or another to be punished, where there's going to be consequences, there's going to be suffering that goes along, right, this kind of... Um, uh, administered to you by the civil authorities because of uh, the evil that you've done. But then there's a, there's a third way, uh, another way that, that suffering comes uh, that, that's at least hinted at or, or suggested here in our passage, right? This, this other time that's coming when, the, when those who do evil will suffer uh, when they face God's judgment. Uh, so we see in uh, the end of verse 17 and then the end of verse 18, Peter asks two questions, uh, though he doesn't give the answers. Uh, what, will be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then in verse 18, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Uh, again, he doesn't answer those questions, but the implication is that it will be bad, that there will be suffering uh, for those who... Uh, don't obey the gospel for the ungodly and the sinner. And so if, if we think about that third don't, right, don't suffer as an evildoer, it applies in two different ways uh, to two different audiences. So first, uh, this, uh, this don't, don't suffer as an evildoer, it applies to Christians. If you're a Christian, avoid the suffering in this life that comes from sin and folly. Uh, we know we have God's word. He's instructed us on how to live. He's given us his spirit. So Peter says, right, don't suffer as an evildoer. But I think we can also apply this don't uh, to those who aren't Christians with the implicit warning that's given. So if you are not a Christian, if you have not obeyed the gospel with its command uh, to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then, then I want to ask you to consider for a moment the depths of your sin uh, consider all the impurity that's going to rise to the surface when you face the fire of God's judgment. And as you think about that, uh, the, the warning there and the hope that comes along with that warning is don't suffer as an evildoer. Christ already bore the punishment for sin on the cross. Uh, accept his work on the cross. Uh, trust in him and be forgiven, be cleansed. All right, so don't suffer as an evildoer. Uh, now let's look at the do's of suffering. Uh, do face trials as if you will ultimately, as if you'll ultimately prevail, uh, which is the inverse of the first point, right? Don't face trials as if you will fail. Do face them as if you will ultimately prevail. So first, do rejoice. Rejoice when the fiery trial comes. Again, not because of the trial itself, but because... Uh, it's a sign, right? Take it as a sign that you are sharing in Christ's sufferings, all right? Consider yourself blessed when you suffer for the name of Christ. It means that God has put his spirit on you. It means that there's unending joy in your future when Christ returns. And it's okay to get a little excited about that. It's okay to get a lot excited about that. That joy that's coming when Christ appears in glory it's not going to be a disappointment. 
it, it's going to exceed your expectations. It's not going to be, you know, a little underwhelming, a bit of a disappointment when Jesus appeared. No, it's going to overwhelm us. So whatever kind of uh, joy you have ahead of time, it's not enough, right? It's not enough to, to match, to meet the anticipation of that joy that's coming. So it's okay to be happy now, to be joyful now in the midst of suffering because of that future joy that's coming our way. There's always a bit of irony, though, uh, that comes with suffering as a Christian. Because Christ, in a sense, he's both the source of our suffering and he's the source of our strength to prevail in the suffering. And here's what I mean. Uh, when Casey and I lived in Kazakhstan, uh, we knew a girl who had become a Christian, uh, even though her parents were strongly opposed to it. Uh, she would hide a Bible in her room and secretly read it. Uh, she would tell her parents that she was at school or at the library so she could sneak off to a Bible study. Uh, her father, in particular, was very harsh with her. Uh, he said a lot of horrible things to her and even made some, some pretty awful, violent threats against her because she was a Christian. Uh, and when she told Casey about those trials that she was going through, uh, Casey asked her kind of an interesting question. Why not just leave Jesus so you can end all that suffering? Why do you keep following Jesus when it's causing you so much trouble? And the girl answered, no, I could never do that. Jesus gives me so much joy. He gives me hope and strength. How could I turn away from him when he's the one who helps me through all these things that I'm suffering? And it wasn't just a break-even kind of situation for this girl. It wasn't as if, well, following Jesus causes some troubles, but it's got some benefits, so I guess it's kind of worth it. No, for her, the benefits of following Jesus, the joy that came with following Jesus, far outweighed those insults and those threats. So rejoice when you suffer. Second, uh, point B, do suffer as a Christian. Uh, this is the right way to suffer, not as an evildoer, but as a follower of Christ. You know, there, there are certain times when Christians uh, suffer kind of explicitly because they are Christians, because they confess Christ as Lord. Uh, that was the case with Peter's original audience. Uh, it was the case with that girl in Kazakhstan. And uh, that may be true for some of you as well in certain situations to some extent that you are suffering explicitly because you confess the name of Christ. And then we've already talked about uh, not suffering as an evildoer, right? That that's a source of suffering in this world. But then a question kind of remains, uh, what do we do with the other sources of suffering in our life, right? Uh, suffering that's caused by another person, uh, suffering that comes through sickness or tragedy or some other hardship in this world. How do you suffer kind of quote unquote as a Christian in those situations? Well, I think we do so uh, when we have surrendered every aspect of our lives, every square inch of our hearts, to the Lordship of Christ. If you do everything that you do, quote unquote, as a Christian, if you do all things for the glory of Christ, whether eating or sleeping or working or talking, then when suffering comes in any area of that life, it comes to you as a Christian. So when you suffer in like that in those situations, you're also sharing in Christ's suffering. Uh, you're also being 
tested and refined by God, uh, you're also bearing witness to the goodness and the power and the faithfulness of Christ, uh, even if it's you know, just through the common sufferings of this world, sickness or tragedy or an accident, anything along those lines. And then finally, do and trust yourself to God. As I mentioned, verses 17 and 18 ask us to consider what will become of sinners in light of God's judgment. But those questions in verses 17 and 18 about what will become of sinners in light of God's judgment are asked in light of the intensity of God's judgment on his own people. It's, it's asked in light of the intensity of God's judgment on the righteous, on his own household. And so these verses, both of them kind of parallel each other and they move from the lesser to the greater. So verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If it's so difficult for the righteous to endure that fiery trial, how much more difficult is it gonna be for the unrighteous? The fiery trial comes upon us to test us. Uh, as God's people, we are his treasures. We are like precious metals to him, gold and silver. When he puts us in the furnace, the testing has kind of two important functions. First, the testing reveals all the impurities within us, anger and jealousy and pride and fear. Those things rise to the surface when the pressure's on. But the testing doesn't just reveal those impurities. Uh, God also uses the testing to remove those impurities, uh, right? He puts us in the, in the furnace, the impurities rise to the surface, and then he skims them off. He lets them burn away. Then he turns up the heat a little bit more, lets more impurities rise to the surface and deals with them as well. So when it says that the righteous are scarcely saved, it doesn't mean that God is gonna like barely begrudgingly let you into heaven. Uh, it doesn't mean that Christ's work on the cross just kind of eked out a salvation for you. It doesn't mean anything like that. Instead, as Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or as John Calvin explains, uh, when Peter, here's a quote from Calvin. When Peter says that a righteous man is scarcely saved, he refers to the difficulties of the present life. For our course in this world is like a dangerous sailing between many rocks and exposed to many storms and tempests. And thus no one arrives at the port except he who has escaped from a thousand deaths. It is in the meantime certain that we are guided by God's hand and that we are in no danger of shipwreck as long as we have him as our pilot. And then Peter concludes with a final word of instruction to us as Christians. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Uh, this, this is a wonderful verse. It, it ties the whole passage together. And it basically presents us with the only <clears throat> valid option we have in the face of suffering. Uh, it reminds us that God is in control and that the suffering we go through is part of his will. It's interesting that Peter talks about suffering as a fiery trial that God puts us through to test us according to his will. But then he also talks about our suffering as Christians as a participation in the sufferings of Christ, of being persecuted <coughs> uh, for confessing him as our Lord, uh, for following him.
sharing in his sufferings. So we can kind of wonder to ourselves, well, which is it? Uh, am I going through this fiery ordeal as a Christian to be tested and refined by God? Or am I enduring the world's opposition to Christ? Well, it appears to be both. God is testing us and strengthening us, and he's doing so through the hardships that the world throws our way. Those hardships don't take God by surprise. Uh, they are part of his, uh, they are according to his will, part of his purposes uh, to, to, you know, conform us to the image of Christ. So don't fa- face the trials of life as if, as if you will fail, but as if you will ultimately prevail. If you are in Christ, the fiery trial might seem like it's destructive and out of control, but it isn't out of control. Uh, it's destroying what needs to be destroyed. It's destroying uh, what can't last so that what endures will remain. So when suffering comes, you know, our impulse is often to throw our hands up in the air and give up hope or to throw off all restraint and just kind of live for the moment, live for whatever pleasures we can find. Uh, But let me encourage you, let me end by encouraging all of us to entrust ourselves to God. Uh, He made you, he is your faithful creator. Uh, Where else will you turn in the midst of sufferings? Uh, Who else is going to give you the hope that God gives? And as you're entrusting yourself to God, uh, let me also encourage you, as the verse says, to do so while doing good. It's hard to keep doing good in the midst of suffering, But when we do, it's like a declaration of hope in the midst of the suffering. It's it's kind of an act of rebellion against the darkness of this world. It's an act of rebellion against those waves that seem like they're overwhelming us, the flood that seems like it's gonna wipe us out, the fire that seems like it's gonna destroy us completely. If we continue just in those small practical ways of doing good, Uh, That's our declaration kind of to this world. No, I have hope. Uh, I'm going to endure this. Let me pray. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. Uh, Would you give us strength to do good in the midst of suffering? Would you give us the strength to uh, suffer as Christians, not as sinners, though we recognize that Suffering, not suffering as a sinner, uh, is, it won't end until you return Christ. But would you purify us? Would you refine us? Uh, would you give us hope even in the midst of trials uh, that we're presently in? Uh, God, that you are kind, that you are gentle, uh, that you are a loving Heavenly Father who cares for us, uh, who is just purifying us as your treasure, that there's hope, that there's love, that there's joy. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.